Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm very grateful for this opportunity to address you. But did I do that to somebody else? Today? No. <laughs> Seamus said, I'm only six months into the job, so you'll have to forgive any uh, weaknesses in my presentation, if there are any. I would welcome at any opportunity, any of you, raise your hand, ask a question, make a comment, etc., so that this just isn't me speaking to you for 45 minutes. Let's clarify something first. The Press Council only deals with print journalism and some online journalism. So if you are a journalist in the broadcast area, it will be the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland that will deal with any complaint that is made about your work. So the Press Council deals with all the national newspapers, most of the regional newspapers, about half the magazines of Ireland, and also the journal online, and also the online versions of the Times, the Independent, the Examiner, etc., so that's the area. The reason for that is that it is voluntary. You have to join the Press Council. If you are a newspaper publisher, you have to volunteer to join the Press Council. And if you decide not to join, then you are saying that your newspaper, your magazine, will not accept a complaint from a member of the public who has purchased your newspaper uh, that something you have written uh, breaches the code. So it, it's only all the national newspapers, most of the regional newspapers but half magazines, and then the emergent online area. There is an interesting area that's worth kind of an early diversion, and that is um, the area of blogging and Facebook and other new media means of communicating with an audience. You know, there's question marks whether, what, when does that become journalism? When is that just someone expressing a viewpoint who isn't a professional journalist or doesn't even aspire to be a journalist? At the moment, that area is largely unregulated, as indeed is most of the Internet. And as you know, there is a significant debate taking place, uh, which will go on forever, about how to regulate the Internet, whether it should be regulated or not, where it becomes censorship, where it becomes government control, whatever else it is. But it's an important area, and it seeps into the press council to a small extent, and that is, if you are a journalist and you tweet, and you tweet from... Uh, an account which is recognisably a newspaper's account, if it's you know, John Murphy, independent, then the press council will accept a complaint about that. We will regard that as a complaint made by a working journalist communicating with his or her audience. So that, that's the only sort of area, online area, where um, the only internet area where uh, the press council would, would say it has any uh, remit. Um, but as I, do, as I said, it does include the online versions of all the newspapers, and it does include the journal. So they are the main uh, online journalism uh, sources at the moment. Why does the Press Council exist? You can be cynical about it and say it exists because if it didn't exist, the state would introduce regulations to control the media. That's a very negative way of putting it. But it, there's some basis, I mean, Seamus will vouch for this, there's some basis in that, and that is, back in a decade ago, there was a lot of talk about introducing laws on privacy, etc., and there was a real possibility that laws could have been passed which would have restricted freedom of expression and freedom to publish. Um, and this is not unique to Ireland. Throughout Europe, you'll see the same experience, and that is that a lot of press councils, in part, came into existence in order to avoid there being government control of uh, print. Now, we live comfortably, I think, enough with the fact that we accept government control over broadcasting, but we don't accept it over print. And that's a very common European practice. Uh, in most European countries, 
The press is not controlled by legislation. It is a voluntary uh, system of self-regulation, and broadcasting is controlled. That is due to the way the two grew over the centuries. Um, when broadcasting came along radio in the 1920s and the television 1930s, there was a limited wavelength space. So somebody had to control it, and therefore it fell on government to control it. So broadcasting has always been under a reasonable degree of control. That also applies to content as well as to, as to uh, wavelength, etc. And that's widely accepted. Um, but equally, very few European countries have what you would have described as, as any form of state control. Now, go outside Europe, of course, and it's a different matter. And, you know, you can see countries like Turkey today, where journalists are regularly imprisoned or regularly harassed, etc. You can see that there are a lot of countries, the most recent example is Burma or Myanmar, where uh, journalists are being arrested and imprisoned. That's, I suppose, on the extreme level. But come back to, come back, come back to Ireland. Um, the Press Council's main job is to adjudicate on complaints that the code of practice has been breached. The code of practice is a very simple 10 principle code which journalists themselves formulated back in 2007. And that code is its obvious very standard stuff about accuracy and truth and fairness and protection of children and no discrimination against minorities, etc. They're all very basic principles that we would all sign up to. But it is a breach of that that a member of the public complains to the press council about. Um, and I think it's important that as working journalists that you have a good idea of what is in that code because it works as a kind of checklist for you. Have I... Is my work... Am I, what I'm doing, is it correct? Is it right? Is it, is it in compliance with the code? Now, we all make mistakes. Journalism possibly makes more mistakes than other professions because you work against deadlines, you work with incomplete information. Sometimes you get a leak of a bit of a report, but not the rest of the report, and the bit that's leaked to you is misleading, and you go with it and you find you're in trouble with it afterwards. So, you know, I think you have to accept that it, as a profession, you operate close to, at times, margins, margins of error, margins of accuracy, margins of fairness, etc. And therefore, there will be occasions when newspapers, magazines, online, publish something and members of the public complains about it. Last year, the Press Council in Ireland received about 350 initial complaints. About half of those disappeared straight away. In some cases, simply because it was a complaint about advertising and therefore was sent to the Advertising Standards Authority. In some cases, it was about broadcasting, so it was sent to the BII. In some cases, it was that the complainant had only a vague sense that something was wrong with the newspaper and couldn't hone in on one particular publication because we only hear complaints about particular publications. We don't hear complaints about there's a bias in the Irish Times in favour of, there's a bias in the Irish Times in favour of. We won't hear complaints about that. So about 350 complaints. About half of them were pursued. And our system is quite simple. If we get a complaint that a section of the code has been breached, we say to the complainant, in the first instance, you must go to the editor of the newspaper or the magazine or the online service and make your complaint to that editor. And that editor has two weeks to respond to you. If he or she fails to respond or you're not satisfied with the response you receive, at that point you come back to the press council and we begin an investigation into that particular complaint. What has happened over the last seven years since the press council was started in 2007 
is that newspapers and magazines take complaints more seriously. They do two things. They take the code more seriously, they take the code seriously, and they take complaints process seriously. So my experience now is that in the majority of cases, when a member of the public makes a complaint and goes to the uh, publisher of that complaint, he or she receives a response. The complaint is considered, it may be rejected, or it may be uh, the newspaper acknowledges it wasn't their best day, yes, there was an error, we can correct it. So how do you address that? Well, in many ways, in some instances, simply acknowledging a mistake was made is sufficient. The complainant is satisfied with that. In some instances, you say, if, you know, yes, I, I hear what you're saying, I take your point, the next time you come back to the subject, we will include your viewpoint on it. That's another very modest way of, of addressing a complaint. In some instances, you will publish a clarification, you'll publish a correction. If it's serious enough, you may even uh, publish an apology. You may offer a letter. We offer you a chance to write a letter which responds to what you read in our newspaper. That can be satisfactory. In some cases, if it goes more serious, you may offer an op-ed where you'll say to the person, you write an article expressing your viewpoint and we'll publish it if it's okay. So there are lots of ways in which a newspaper, an editor of a newspaper, can address complaints from the public. And more often than not, the conciliation process works. Now, in some instances, the newspaper editor will say, we didn't do anything wrong. It was What we published was perfectly accurate and, and right. Therefore, we're sorry we can't help you. And then the complainant will come back to the press council and say, I want this investigated. What happens then is we have a compulsory conciliation process where we have a case officer, and her job is to try and work out an agreement between the complainant and the publisher. And that quite often is successful as well, because at that stage, the conciliation officer, who will be absolutely neutral, will say to the newspaper, you know, an apology will address this, or if you agree to do this, it'll address this. And you say to the complainant, this is as much as you will get. Will you accept that? So that quite often leads to uh, a resolution of the complaint. Last year, uh, only 41 of the 350 initial inquiries we got actually led to a formal decision by <coughs> the ombudsman. So if the conciliation process doesn't work, then the complaint is forwarded to me. And my job is to read the report, obviously, read the submissions made by the complainant and by the uh, uh, editor responsible, and then to issue a decision. I have only four decisions I can make. I can uphold a complaint. I can not uphold a complaint. I can say there is insufficient evidence that allows me to make a decision. And the fourth one is I can say that the newspaper has made sufficient efforts to address the complaint. So, for example, if the newspaper has said to the complainant, we will let you write a letter, and we will publish that letter, assuming it's not defamatory, I might decide that was a sufficient means of, a, of a addressing the concern of the complainant. So I have only four decisions I can make. If the complaint is upheld the newspaper is obliged to publish my decision. And that decision must be published with due prominence. And what that means is, it, if, the complaint, if the original article is on page 11, the publication of the decision must be on page 11 or forward on page 11. It must be on page 10, 1 to 10 or on page 11. The one exception to that is that if the complaint is about something published on the front page of a newspaper, a newspaper can publish it in the first four pages. Um, but other than that, it must be published. You can't hide it back on page 23 in the bottom, so it must be published with due prominence. 
what happens if it's a complaint about the sports pages? Because some people don't actually read all the way to the front, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is actually interesting uh, the way people read newspapers. And aside on that is that um, there seems to be a, a view amongst journalists, editors, that uneven pages are read more frequently than even pages, that newspapers are read page one, page three, page five, and not page two, page four. So pages two and page four are less read than uh, pages one, three, and five. Every front page <coughs> complaint that's been upheld that I've ever seen has always the decision has always been published on page two or page four. So there's never one, three, or five. I've never seen it on page one. Um, but you're right. I mean, some people go straight to the sports section. But if it is a complaint about sport, it will be published in the sports section, and that that would be fine. I have to say, in a, in the six months that I've been with the uh, press council, I've never we haven't received one complaint about sport. But interesting enough, I, mean, I used to do a somewhat similar job in RT from the other side. I used to. I used to uh, coordinate RTE's response to complaints. Sport generated as much complaints in RTE as they did using current affairs. Um, and it's because people feel passionate about sport. So they complain about the ref cheating, etc., or they complain about the commentary, etc. So Pat Spillan or George Hook would generate far more complaints than Enda Kenny or Michael Martin in, in RTE. But, um, another possible reason for that is that in broadcasting, one of the codes, equivalent codes, deals with taste and decency or uh, causing or giving offence, undue offence. That doesn't exist in print. So uh, if your complaint is, you know, the use of the word fuck or something like that, you, can't, you can make a complaint if it was broadcast. You can't make a complaint if it's published because we don't deal with uh, uh, that area, which is a great relief because somebody like Dave McSavage he would generate endless complaints. Satire generates a lot of complaints. There's no equivalent in print, so that makes life uh, a lot easier in, in print. To go back to, to what I was saying, um, if, a, if a decision is upheld, complaint is upheld, it's published. That's the only sanction. In one or two other European countries, there can be a fine. In Scandinavia, it's, kind of a, a, it's a nominal fine, maximum 300 euros. Britain has a new press council, Ipso, and they extraordinarily can fine up to £1 million sterling. Uh, based on circulation and uh, financial turnover of the publisher. I think we're very lucky we don't have a fine system because we're voluntary. And it, there's something odd about being able to fine people in a voluntary organisation. It is pride, it is your professionalism, your sense of professionalism that is, that is at issue here. And that is, the code is a code which has been created by journalists. The journalists own that code. It's not the press council's code. It is there's a codes committee that's made up entirely of journalists and they drafted the code and they meet about once or twice a year and consider reviewing it. At the moment there are three minor changes taking place in the code which will come into practice in about a month's time. The first of these, we're changing the title. The title at the moment is Code of Practice for Newspapers and Magazines. We're changing that just to Code of Practice and that is simply to recognise the huge growth of online journalism. The second <coughs> change is one of the principles is is called fairness, and we're changing that to fairness for our procedures. And the reason for that is that news often isn't fair. It's very unfair news. You know, something happens and it's reported. It's not fair, but it happens, and therefore newspapers are entitled to report it. So we're trying to educate users of, the, of uh, complainants that fairness refers to procedures, the way in which the story was researched, rather than what was actually published. So if 
a journalist calls on the door of someone, say, a murder victim, knocks on the door and says, uh, your son was murdered, was shot in a gangland killing yesterday. I was a good friend of his. Uh, we used to go drinking together. or We hitchhiked in Australia, whatever else it is. And that journalist is lying. That would be a breach of fair procedures. You would be uh, lying about the way in which you re- the way in which you research the story would have been dishonest. You could make complaint about that, but you can't make a complaint about something which is published, which is accurate, which you know you feel is is uh, unfair. A good example of that would be court reporting. We get a number of complaints about people who are dissatisfied with court reporting, but essentially, if the journalist goes to the court and reports contemporaneously, in other words, quickly and accurately about what happens in court. You can't be liable for defamation, but equally so, you're protected within the code. You, you have done your job. But it may actually be very unfair, because the day you go to the court may be the day in which one side gives its evidence. And a week later, a month later, or a day later, even sometimes six months later, the other side gets its day in court. And we get on a small but regular basis complaints that the second day in court, when the defence side was given as post prosecution side, the newspaper wasn't there. But we can't make a newspaper go back to uh, a court six months later. They may have only two journalists available, and there may be more important stories. So the editor says, that's a more important story. Or in many cases, they don't know about it. I'll give you a very good example, and it was, I think it was the Clare Champion. Um, there was a bad car crash about seven or eight years ago, and two people were killed. And the... Um, the coroner's report said that one of the two people killed was responsible for the accident. The family of the... This was reported in the newspaper, the local newspaper at the time. The family of the person who was regarded as having caused the accident was very upset. And they campaigned and campaigned for several years to get a new uh, coroner uh, decision. And there was a new one, and the new one said the evidence was incomplete, and therefore it couldn't be said with for certainty that this one person had caused the death of himself and the other person. The family were really upset because the second coroner's uh, inquiry was not reported in the newspaper. Now, we went to the newspaper and said, you know, why didn't you report the second coroner's report? And the editor said, and I absolutely believe him, we would have been very interested in reporting that, but we didn't know about it. No one told us about it. You know, even though it was within our area, we did, our attention wasn't drawn to it, we didn't notice it. So we couldn't report something we didn't know about. And that was absolutely the end of the matter. There was no obligation within the code for the newspaper to publish the second one, even though it would have been nice to have done so, and even though the editor admitted he would have liked to have done so. But it wasn't a breach of any code. Um, so back to it, it's, it's, it's a journalist code. The journalists themselves create the code, and I think it needs to, we need to create a sense amongst journalists of ownership of the code. It should be your pride that should be at stake, that what you have published uh, is not in breach of the code. And that's why I think it's very important that there is this sense of, of ownership of it and sense of responsibility. And my experience is that having the existence of the code itself has improved journalist standards over the last seven years. That just simply, that's been a slow exercise. It has improved in which, the way in which complaints are handled by newspapers and magazines and also has improved the way in which journalists uh, do their reporting. Sometimes you only begin to look at the code when the proverbial shit has hit the fan. And I, the obvious example I can give you about that is that I was working in RT at the time of the Father Reynolds documentary. And we discovered after, when there was a huge cry about that, uh, we discovered afterwards that most of the production team working in that had no idea of the code, uh, print, the 
guidelines for journal for program makers, which RT had written, which I worked on for years. No one was aware of them. The producer was using an edition of the guidelines, which had been written seven years earlier and had been updated twice in the meantime. At least he was aware there was a code, but he was working off an outdated one because what happened is he had printed off one when he joined RTE, had that, but hadn't bothered or hadn't, his attention hadn't been sufficiently drawn to the fact that it had been updated twice since. So he was just relying on a, a printed edition from seven years earlier, which was seriously out of date when it came to issues with investigative journalism. So, I mean, that, that's an issue. To go back to a complaint, if I uphold a complaint, the newspaper has to publish it. Now, there's, there's an appeal. Either the complainant or the publisher can appeal against the decision of the ombudsman. So if the complainant isn't satisfied that I haven't upheld the complaint, or the newspaper is dissatisfied that I have upheld the complaint, there is an appeal. And the appeal goes to the uh, press council. The press council is made up of 13 members. Seven of them are independent members, including the chairman. And six of them represent the industry. National newspapers, magazines, uh, NUJ, provincial newspapers, regional newspapers. So there's always a majority in f- who are independent and a minority are members of the, uh, of the, of the profession of journalism. Um, so the council then looks at the original complaint, looks at the submissions made, looks at the ombudsman's uh, decision and decides whether to uphold or not uphold that. So if the council upholds the ombudsman's position, then the publication goes ahead. If the council rejects it, then uh, it doesn't have to be published. So there is built into it an initial, there's built into it a conciliation process and a, a decision by the ombudsman, and then, if desired, an appeal by the uh, press council. So I, I think it's, it's proven to be, over the last seven years, a fairly robust system. And I think the evidence for that is that we don't get a lot of expressions from the general public of dissatisfaction with the Press Council. We don't get what happened in England with the predecessor of the present Press Council. We don't get the general public saying, oh, the Press Council is in the, is totally under the influence of the journal, or, or newspapers, and therefore isn't really independent. We don't get that accusation. Of course we get complainants unhappy when we don't uphold their complaints. But we're not getting this <coughs> expression which was widespread in Britain, that is that the uh, predecessor of the pre- Press Council was uh, too much on the side of newspapers. And Millie Dowler affair, uh, you all must be aware of that, uh, and, and hacking of, of um, uh, people's mobile phones, etc., by newspapers, did reflect a significant decline in standards in journalism in Britain. And the Press Council in Britain really failed to respond to that in any adequate way. And they've ceased to exist. And what you have in Britain now is an absolute mess where you have Government, you have Levison recommendations after an extensive inquiry, you have government proposals, and you have what is effectively now two organisations, IPSO and a new body, another new body, trying to establish themselves as independent uh, councils, neither of which are going to sign up to this royal charter which the British government suggested. So it's a mess in Britain at the moment. We could go there too, it could happen in Ireland too. Um, but I don't get this sense in this country of the same level of dissatisfaction. Undoubtedly, there is a view at the moment, and that is that there is a sense of dissatisfaction with the establishment, and that is Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, the whole lot of them. Um, and a lot of those who are protesting throw in mainstream media into that. So they'll say RTE, News Talk, 
Irish Independent Examiner, are also part of the establishment. So there is a sort of a, an anti-establishment move or mood in Ireland at the moment. And I think um, quite a lot of those protesters would regard mainstream media as part of the establishment. And they would look to alternative uh, social media as a better means of communication, a better means of getting at the truth. This has to be a major concern, I think, for journalism in Ireland, and that is that uh, the job of being the fourth of state, of holding up to account those in power, those with uh, influence, those with uh, resources, etc., is so central. Uh, and we're doing this, I uh, say we, should say, you're doing this, at a time when resources are thinner, when the whole future of the industry, as James referred to there and, 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 and Jared referred to there, is, is in doubt. Um, but it doesn't lessen the importance of that, and that is that every society needs strong journalism in order to hold to account those in power and those with privilege, etc. And if you let that slip, if you hand that over to bloggers, if you hand that over to pressure groups and lobby groups, you are handing over a terribly central function in public discourse to a very unregulated, unprofessional, easy-to-manipulate uh, means of communication. And it's, it's, it's a serious concern, I would say. Um, and I, I think media in Ireland has to fight back against this view that uh, they are part of the establishment. It's, it's, it's important, I think the Press Council plays a part in this. If complaints are made of articles being biased or inaccurate, etc., that that complaint is upheld. I, mean, I say this to you in confidence now. I've been very concerned. I've been six months as press ombudsman, and I have made about 20-odd decisions so far, and I've only upheld two complaints. So that's a very low level of complaint upheld. That's only 10% of complaints that I've considered have upheld. That actually is a worry, because the public may say, well, if you always find in favour of the journalists. What is the point of being there? You're not independent. But you have to judge each complaint on its merits. And um, that figure, I have to say, is distorted because eight of those complaints that I have adjudicated on all came from the Israeli ambassador. And um, I, I upheld none of those complaints, even though I know I shouldn't say this, I would have loved to have upheld something so that I could show that I was fair. But I couldn't find anything that was... Uh, wasn't that breached the code and what was reported on and led to the eight complaints from the Israeli ambassador. So it may be early days for me and I may manage to get things better in time to come. What's happening, I mean, this is, I'm saying things that you already know, what's happening in the media is a sort of convergence between print, broadcasting and online. And it's beginning to question why is there a separate BAI and a separate press council. And um, an interesting way of looking at that now is that if you go to the main newspapers' online websites, you will find video on their websites. The journalist, as well as going out and filing uh, uh, a report, is also doing piece to camera, etc. Um, instinctively, you would say that video should be part of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland because it's video, the medium is video. But actually, it falls under the Press Council's remit because it's not broadcast. It, even though it is, it's on the website of Irish Independent, Irish Times, etc., Examiner, but it is uh, not broadcast still, so it still falls under the Press Council. Um, and the whole, with the convergence between print and online, and you get a newspaper like the Irish Independent now claiming it's no longer a newspaper, claiming now it's a, it's a media group, and they will say uh, online is as important to us as, as print. 
Um, this sort of distinction is beginning to become a bit difficult to sustain. And I'm not sure where it is going. And to be fair to the BII, they don't aspire to taking control of the, what is currently the remit of the press council. And I think journalists would not welcome that because, because the BII is, is state-regulated and its board is appointed by government, whereas the board of the press council is entirely independent of government. So I think there is that sort of built-in independence in the press council, which I think is important and, and certainly worth uh, defending and, and, uh, and, and fighting for. Are any questions you'd like to ask at this stage? I'm sensitive to the fact that you're being very quiet. I don't know if that means agreement or, or not. Question here. Will you have a breakdown of uh, unfair practices in your announcement? That's a good question. Um, we have the Irish code is the shortest press council code that I'm aware of. I've looked at about half a dozen other countries. And the Irish one is actually very short. We've, we've only ten principles, and one of them is just publishing our decisions. So really only nine principles that count. If you go to other countries, they have 30 or 40, and they expand it greatly. Um, what we have, we're quite keen to keep our code as short as possible, to put as much responsibility as possible back on journalists. So journalists come to you and say, can I do this or not do this? And the answer is always frustrating. It is, you look at the code and you make that decision for yourself. So what we try to do is put the responsibility on journalists themselves to interpret the code. If you say, well, we will give you guidelines, and there is a, on their website there is guidelines for journalists and how to interpret the code, but I think it hands over takes, it makes the journalist irresponsible if you say to the journalist, you don't have to worry about this, we will tell you exactly what you can and cannot do. We will tell you that you can't knock on the door and pretend you, you are a friend of the person who is dead in order to get a comment or get a photograph, etc. We won't tell you what you can and cannot do about lifting stories <coughs> of Facebook. So we try to say, no, you make that decision and you use your intelligence and, and if you get it right, that's, that's fine if you don't. A, a good evidence for this, I think, is if you remember about four or five years ago, Primetime made a program about abuse of patients in care homes, Lease Cross. And the owners of Lease Cross went to the High Court to stop the program being broadcast. And they argued privacy and trespass. They said, by bringing in hidden cameras, you were breaching the privacy of the people inside, both staff and, and patients, but also you're trespassing in private property. The High Court judge was Frank Clark. And his decision was very interesting. His decision was, um, yes, it was a breach of privacy, and yes, it was trespass, but there was a public interest argument in showing the abuse of patients in, those in, in the institution. And therefore, the public interest justified the breach of privacy and the trespass. But he said, be it on your heads, journalists, that you get it right, that he wasn't saying carte blanche, you know, privacy doesn't matter anymore, trespass doesn't matter anymore. You've got to be able to show that you acted responsibly. You weren't going engaging in a fishing exercise. You had good reason to believe that patients were being abused. You had whistleblowers or whatever else happens to be telling you about it. It was on that basis that you went in and that you went in and you, you got the evidence which you needed for the story. So the judge said, I'm not allowing this uh, injunction but I'm putting it back on the journalist's responsibility to, to do it properly. So I, I would say the same about what we do. We don't tell you what you can and cannot do. We say, these, these are the principles you need to operate under, and you yourself look at these principles. Now, that does present a dilemma for freelance journalists. I, I'm sure a lot of you will have seen 
uh, an anonymous article in the Irish Times a month ago from some months ago from a journalist who was very upset about being sent out to people's homes to get comments after deaths, etc. Uh, and uh, that journalist was made a female. Um, he, he or she was concerned that he, he as a freelancer put under unfair pressure to do something that he or she wasn't happy to do and wasn't comfortable with doing. So, you know, that is always a danger. And if you are, I needn't say this to you, if you are, have a staff position, you are in a stronger position to say, no, I, I think this breaches the code. If you're a freelancer, that becomes that much harder. And, and at that point, I mean, I really think you need to be giving your union a shout if, if you're uncomfortable with what you're being asked to do, if you think it's a breach of fair procedures as laid out in the uh, Code of Practice. And also a breach of the NUJ Code of Conduct. Yes, of course. I mean, yes, exactly. Yeah. It would yeah. be, exactly. Yeah. 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 Just from the point of view of fair procedures, um, as freelance journalists, lots have to work in other sectors. Mm-hmm. And if you get a story in that particular mm-hmm. sector that you're working in and you want to go anonymously, do you have to give full disclosure to editors in relation to... Working involved in that sector, if it's a hot story. I, I, working in RT, I, I dealt with this, and that is a journalist has some information which he or she has received anonymously, or well, he knows who gave it, but on the basis of anonymity. His editor or her editor is has, has a dilemma, and that is you want to be certain that what you're publishing is accurate. Your journalist won't tell you who gave you that information. You would have to be very confident that the journalist had done his or her homework, that the person giving the information wasn't doing it for a particular purpose which mightn't be evident, wasn't partisan himself or herself. But you can't... I mean, some editors might say, I'm not prepared to risk the reputation of my publication by running with a story where I cannot be absolutely confident that uh, the source is genuine, etc. But I think you have a duty as a journalist who receives confidential information not to breach that confidentiality. I think the most you could do is you could say to the editor, I will go back to my source and say, can I get him? Will you be prepared to meet the editor, to let the editor know who you are? If you say no, I will say that to the editor and see what the editor says. But I, I don't think you can actually breach... <coughs> and I guess the NUJ could be quite similar. Yeah, and I think there's a distinction here to be made between confidentiality and anonymity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I. But text to full disclosure, just full disclosure as to what you're, how you're involved in this particular. Well, if you have an involvement in the story, mm-hmm. uh, you must make that clear to your editor, and it is up to the editor then to decide whether the story is used. Whether, I mean, and in particular, whether or not there is a conflict of interest which needs to be addressed. My own personal view is that we are very, it's one of the areas where we are very weak on in Ireland. We have a situation where uh, on in the Irish Times on a Friday, Noel Whelan, who is involved in advising the Yes campaign, writes about marriage equality, and on Saturday in the Irish Times, we have a patron of the I.O. on Institute writing, and the declaration is not made, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that in the expression of opinion, it's bleeding obvious that someone who is a patron of a campaigning body should have that declared. In news stories, if you're a journalist, particularly given that it's a freelance form, if you have any sort of a hint of a vested interest, you should always declare that to the editor, because if they find out separately, they're not going to use you again. Parallel with that, I have a concern about advertorial publications. And I'll give you a specific example. I don't wish to pick on a particular newspaper. Sunday Business Post published a couple months ago an article about wind farms. And it was an article in favour of wind farms, and we got a complaint from a member of the public who was anti-wind farm. 
And we looked at the article online, uh, and we said, you know, this is uh, just absolute advocacy in favour of wind farms. So the complaint was forwarded to the editor of the Sunday Business Post. He came back to us and said, nothing to worry about. It wasn't editorial, it was advertorial. And we then we didn't have a hard copy of the newspaper, so we went down to the public library and looked at the hard copy. And sure enough, page 14, standard editorial, page 15, advertorial. And yes, it did say on the top, sponsored or uh, commercial, whatever else it was. But the typeface was virtually identical. The layout was virtually identical. So to the casual reader, I have no doubt, but the casual reader would have thought this was actually editorial. In fact, the wind farm, the pro-wind farm lobbying group had paid for that page. And the whole page was made up of pro-wind farm stuff. And I think the casual reader was quite, would quite genuinely have been confused. Now, we actually couldn't uphold that complaint because once the matter is advertorial, <coughs> it actually falls under the Advertising Standards Authority. So it was a paid-for commercial communication. So it didn't fall under our brief. But it's something I, I, I want to revisit, and that is because um, you can see how advertorial is creeping into editorial. You see it in magazines quite a lot. There's a very good example in RT recently, which I was shocked about, and that is the afternoon program, which comes from the Cork Studios. They are now charging guests to appear on the program. So if a hotel manager turns up in that program talking about his or her hotel, uh, you know, what a wonderful hotel it is, they're actually paying to be guests on the program. Now, I would not have known that as a viewer. I would have assumed the producers or researchers picked that hotel manager because it was a particularly good hotel or because he or she was particularly articulate or whatever else the reason it was. But the notion that they're actually paying for that, I think for me, uh, is um, commercial considerations seriously influencing um, editorial content and certainly something that I think the BAI should have a, should certainly have a strong view on. I saw two in TV3 with um, the programme um, restaurant. It used to run an RT and then RT lost interest in it and there was an independent production. The independent production company took it to TV3 and said, you know, would you be interested in it? And TV3, I'm guessing here, said, yes, we would, but we're not prepared to pay for it. You have to get it fully funded. And now the programme is funded by Aldi. And, and fair enough, they say sponsored by Aldi, but what worries me about it is that all the products in the programme are also Aldi products. And even the wines in it are all Aldi wines. So um, it just seems to me that you've, you've moved from sponsorship into effectively placing stuff and interfering editorially with the content of the programme. So I think that, that would be a concern. Question there, gentlemen, in the hat. Is the, the, the court studio uh, tendering I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I, all I know about is what I read in the newspapers, and that is that they're actually charging guests to appear in the program. It's, it's an in-house production. It's made by RT Cork, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an RT production. It's not an independent production. It wouldn't be any different, but it is actually... You may know somebody. You may I just know. want to ask you, yeah. um, on the front page of The Sun this morning, um, there's a photo. It says, join our energy campaign. Um, and it's from a, a, a group called One Big Switch, and the entire front page is dedicated to the way in which One Big Switch is going to bring down our electricity costs, which are the highest across the entire review. How would they, like, are this, is that not very impartial? Of this yeah. of it's, I haven't seen it. I don't think it's fair to be asking the Ombudsman about something that he might actually have <laughs> <laughs> to be let, let me answer the theory. Let me answer the theory, yeah. Okay. Um, Anything that contaminates journalism is a bad thing. You know, anything that contaminates the independence of the journalist who writes the article, the 
sub-editor, the news editor, the editor of the newspaper, is a bad thing. You want to try and come at your job, which is to report the truth and comment on the truth and give uh, background information as independently and as uncontaminated as possible. So anything that encroaches on that is, is, is a concern, is a worry. If, there, if it is misleading, if, if the newspaper has been paid or has got a quid pro quo somewhere later on for something, it is a concern. But it would have to be, it would have to be looked into. I think probably the press council needs to move towards arguing that it has more, its remit should extend into some degree of advertorial matters and not just hand it over to the Advertising Standards Authority, as which is currently happens. And look, yeah, taking up that point, did, did you ha- have you had to take a view on, on the way in which newspapers are beginning again to act as cheerleaders for the property sector, the rising prices in the properties? Yeah, yeah. Um, have you, have you had, can I ask if you made, have you had any complaints about that or is, is it on you? You are right. I mean, it, it's quite evident already that the newspapers are reverting to where they were 10 years ago in terms of property. They're becoming cheerleaders for massive increase in property prices. There has been no complaints so far to, um, to the Press Council about uh, property journalists. But it is quite clear to me that property journalism is still journalism. It's not paid for. It's not advertorial. It is journalism. It purports to be journalism. And therefore, the same standards apply as apply. We can only hear complaints about one particular... You can only complain about a particular publication. You can't complain about a trend or you know, a, a movement or whatever else it is. But I, I don't think you can <laughs> buy for a second that the property section of the newspapers are exempt from the same requirements as the rest of journalism because they, they clearly can influence the market. They clearly can have a very detrimental effect and drive up prices and, and, um, and squeeze people who are trying to get on, onto the property ladder. So it, there hasn't been a complaint yet. But I mean, I have seen kind of... I've, I've read editors who have said, oh, property page, oh, the bane of my life, uh, just ignore them. You just you know, Nobody expects them to be objective. They, you can't get away with that unless you actually stick on the cover advertorial, unless you make it absolutely clear. So actually, interesting to look at the journal. The journal has been scrupulously careful to date in clearly demarcating to its people who use it that uh, what is paid from what isn't paid for. They're absolutely scrupulous. They actually have a different colour on all the stuff that is sponsored or is advertorial. They're very careful. I mean, it's, it's just a commendably how, good, how careful they've been to date in, in doing that. Much more so than newspapers, which in some ways, are obscuring between editorial and editorial. Yeah, I mean, maybe on that, what is needed is is not a cute phrase like advertorial, but something this has been paid for by. Yes, yeah, yeah. In, yeah, in other words, yeah. more explicit. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's a grey area because you think of motoring journalism and travel journalism. And the, in, in many cases, at the end of the article, it'll say, you know, Etihad Airlines paid, paid for the flights and Turkish Tourism Board paid for my accommodation. But you don't always get that. And you, you, I, I worry, particularly in magazines, I worry when you see something editorial and then four pages later you see a whole page ad for whatever was mentioned in the editorial. So H&M opened a new branch in Dublin and there's a long editorial about a wonderful H&M is and then three pages later you see several pages of ads for H&M. And your instinct is that it's a quid pro quo. If you buy advertising in our newspaper, we will give you good editorial material. So that's kind of a worry too. But you know, maybe in the kind of fashion end it's not as serious, but yes, it could be so serious, because if you are 
uh, a small retailer struggling, you can't afford to buy the ads, therefore you, you really expect the editorials to be fair. Um, so I mean, it, it is sort of grayer, but I, and I think, you know, in an industry which has gone through such financial crises, it's not welcome news to start talking about sources of revenue, sources of income, and whether you should, whether you should go down the road. And I saw it in RTE big time, this contamination of public service broadcasting by sponsorship, by giving away things free. And I just cringe the amount of times that RTE runs uh, competitions and runs, um, you know, uh, the afternoon show with Derek Mooney every bloody day. You could win a thousand euros if you sent in a fa- an email, a, a text which cost a euro or a euro fifty. Um, I used to cringe about that and just think that you know, that really contaminates uh, public service broadcasting. And as some people here will know I was FOI officer in RT for a long time, and RT refused to release how much revenue they got from uh, these. Uh, text that people sent in uh, and uh, they argued it was commercially sensitive but I was very doubtful about that argument I just wished they'd been pursued by the BII or by journalists who went to the information commission on it it just really was outrageous what they're getting I'd be happy to resubmit the I right it's 11 o'clock so I've, I've kind of run out of my time is there anything uh, any last question you'd also ask me you won't query about some of the Irish water if you got some like Kenza Brown who owns media and also owns a stake of that, how do you make sure it's, uh, it's written about fairly and impartial? Seamus talked about conflicts of interest. In a particularly small country like Ireland, you're going to know, or maybe even related or connected to the people you're writing about. It's 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 just it's 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 more difficult in the smaller country you're in. And that is your relationship can be in some way, either create the perception or the reality that your judgment, your judgment will be influenced. Um, Vincent Brown walks a unique tightrope because he is so opinionated in what he does and what he says. When he is broadcasting on TV3, TV3 is under absolutely the same requirements in terms of standards as is RTE. The exact same principles apply to commercial broadcasting as it does public service broadcasting. I wonder how Brown gets away with it on TV3, what he says. When it comes to his print journalism, the same standards do not apply, but he still is obliged by the NUJ code and he still is obliged by the code of practice, whatever newspaper he's publishing in, and he's still obliged by the same uh, code of practice for the, from the press council. So, I mean, there are standards that still apply, but in, in terms of editorialising what appears on broadcasting, he, ha- he ought to be more careful than what he can get away with, if I use that term, because he's more entitled to express his opinion in print. <coughs> and, I, 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 you know, I've never, I haven't received any complaints from Vincent Brown. We have had complaints, for example, by Kevin Myers expressing very strong views uh, in his column in Sunday Times, or maybe in the Independent Times, and complaints are upheld against... Um, Kevin Myers, as far as I recall, before my time, um, on the grounds that what he published was just simply outrageous. Things about Africa, uh, outrageous. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, you know, there is a fine line, and at the end of the day, the press council needs to argue strongly in favour of freedom of speech, freedom of expression. These are important rights that we all have, and they're very important in any society. And at the same time, we need to also preach being responsible and using that freedom you have in a responsive manner. And getting that balance right, 
ultimately comes down to judgment of the ombudsman and the press council and you just simply do your best and, and try to be fair to both sides and try to get this balance between freedom of expression and we've all seen this with Charlie Hebdo I mean that is the most shockingly striking example of where a satirical magazine sets out to offend and they're quite upfront about it we enjoy offending Christians, Jews, Muslims etc and we offend away and then somebody comes along and kills, shoots eight journalists and four policemen because of what the published. I mean, that's the most frightening example of where you have to ask yourself, is there a boundary to freedom of expression? Is there a boundary to freedom of speech? Are there obligations that go with that freedom? Can that be regulated? Should it be regulated? Should it be self-regulated? Should it be state-regulated? Without anybody defending what those guys did, you know, it does raise very serious questions. Can I ask just a quick question? I'm just wondering what your view would be on space maybe left of centre in Ireland for a new newspaper? Um, <laughs> there are times when I've said, I suppose, at one stage that they're in that space. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the great things. People actually don't really have the voice. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah. I think you're. I think you're probably right. I mean, I, no, sorry, just give one example. Yeah. Last one in Scotland, yeah. on the back of the independence mm. campaign. Mm. I mean, that was, as far as I can see, that's quite successful mm. at the minute. I'm just wondering, do you mm. see any space in that sort of market in Ireland? Undoubtedly, there is a large group of people in this country now who are dissatisfied with existing media. There's no question about that. They're dissatisfied with newspapers, dissatisfied with broadcasters. Um, I suppose you would, could describe that as kind of a left-of-centre position. Is there a market for a, a publication to address that? I, I'm, I'm just not sure. I mean, it has to, it has to be a commercial market because it's going to also have to sell advertising because, you know, you won't make it on either paywall if it's online or on subscription if, if you have to buy it. You need advertising as well. Would, would that kind of publication get commercial advertising? It's hard to say. I mean, I'm, I'm not a business person, um, but certainly you, you instinctively feel that in terms of newspapers at the moment, that that sort of anti-establishment position is not reflected in newspapers. But I'm not sure whether there's a commercial model for it. So basically... If there is a market for a left-wing newspaper, a capitalist will figure it out. Yeah, I'm afraid that's what it <laughs> Or in another time, maybe a, a union of journalists would have the funds to support it, but that day is certainly not with us at the moment. I just lost the book. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for Steve. Yeah.